Welcome to the audio-only version of this week's pop-up submission show. I hope you enjoy it. We love you to join us for the live show on YouTube every Sunday at 5pm UK time. YouTube.com slash Litopia. What have we got on the menu today? We've got thrillers, we've got historical fiction, quite a lot of that. We've got crime, we've got more crime, and we've got women's fiction as well. So if any of that floats your boat, I think you're going to be in luck. Here to help me, of course, oh, what a treat. What an absolute treat. It's Mo O'Hara, New York Times best-selling writer, good all-round egg. Fantastic have Mo on again. <laughs> on the other side of the room, it's an equally amazing delight. It's, it's Robert Derry. Now, you've heard him. If you've ever watched pop-up submissions at any point in the past. You've heard Robert doing narrating. He's one of our longest-standing narrators, and I have to say, one of our best as well. He's an, he's an amazing narrator. This is the very first time he's been on the show. We're expecting great things from Robert. Litopians, report to the Genius Room right now. Genius.litopia.com and that is indeed the third part of the equation, the genius room, who are nothing but geniuses, actually, as you'll see. Their live reactions and manuscripts is just amazing. Nothing else out there like this on the internet. We're doing it live. We're doing it now. We're doing it for you. And here we are. We've got this month's winners so far a very very important show at the moment because it's the last one of the month uh, you'll find out how and why in a moment third place so far this month is last week's number two the dark side of life eternal ya from david lynch in second place it's last week's winner middle grade medieval adventure from brian brian slattery but still actually in the number one position has been there all month um, it's Matthew with his picture book for children in hospital. And we've done that. Um, now then, what else do I need to tell you? I think you're just about ready. You're primed. The important thing about this show, of course, is he is the very last one of the month. And that means the month's winner, something very special happens to them. With over 100 worldwide number one bestsellers, Head of Zeus is a formidable British-based publishing powerhouse. Independent Publisher of the Year, Digital Business of the Year, the awards and tributes keep rolling in. Now, Pop-Up Submissions has partnered with Head of Zeus to find tomorrow's best-selling authors. Each month's Pop-Up winner will be fast-tracked straight to them for their expert consideration. We know writing is never easy, but now Pop-Up Submissions makes it easier for you and your work to find a great publishing home. Yeah, we've got some uh, good track record with Head of Zeus. Let me just put this up so you can see. Um, Argo, Serpent King, both uh, pop-up alum alumni, and indeed is The Hunter's Walk by uh, Nabil, which is, that's being published by Penguin. But those, uh, those other two, we've got some very nice words from the authors of each one, Tim and Mark, thank you very much for those guys, um, are being published by Head of Zeus. So everything to play for in this show. Let's have a look at our very first submission. It's called Grand Sasso, and it's a thriller slash suspense. And it's from Gary, who I believe 
is uh, in the house right now. Hello, Gary. Good to have you. Let me read you Gary's blurb. 1943. Mussolini is deposed from power and taken to a secret location. The Allies should be celebrating, but Churchill is troubled. Communist partisans want to form a Bolshevik government in the north and link up with French communists in southern France. And Tito to the east, that would be the former Yugoslavia, I think, to form a Bolshevik belt in southern Europe with Stalin. It's an unbeatable nightmare scenario. Lose southern Europe to Stalin, the Allies lose the war in Europe. Can Churchill's agents persuade Hitler to rescue Mussolini. Oh, I like the concept, actually. Interesting, isn't it? I like the title, too, actually. Uh, let me tell you about um, Gary, who is with us now. Uh, recently retired from Harrods after 42 years. 32 years as the security operations manager and on duty during the Harrods car bomb incident. Must have been quite rough. I served in the parachute regiment with two tours of Northern Ireland. A member of the Western Front Association, I visit the battlefields and places of interest of both world wars. This is my second novel. Uh, the first was Wipers Gold. That's Ypres, wasn't it? That's what Wipers used to be called in the First World War. Uh, that's currently on Amazon Books. I originally called this latest novel Mussolini's Second Chance, but changed the title to Grand Sasso once I completed the 88,000-word novel that culminates in a daring, near-impossible glider raid on a skiing hotel in Grand Sasso, the highest peak in the Italian Apennine Mountains. I think the title change has improved it. Um... And I think also we're going to give it the very, very best possible chance it's got with a reading by Jeff. Grand Sasso by Gary, read by Jeff. Chapter One. The tall, lean man, the eye patched over his left eye, flipped back the heavy grey blanket that covered the doorway. The difference was shocked the senses. Outside, the sun was still struggling to rouse itself. Inside, the smells of cooking fires, stale cigarettes and acrid sweat punched you in the throat. Behind him came a partisan messenger with a German Mauser rifle slung over his shoulder. He didn't look back, knew the messenger would react to the smells too. They wore clothes similar to the local hill farmers of this region. The clothes couldn't disguise the lean men's bearing though. He had travelled overnight, the last two hours by foot, dressed like a farmer but erect like a lord. Picturesque valleys and hillside had passed him by, barely registering as markers as he followed the messenger to the ancient hilltop village, lying ruined and abandoned, too many earthquakes. The lean man waited a few seconds until his eye grew accustomed to the dim light. Then he stepped towards the source of all the punchy smells, a group of rough and shaven men crowded around the bright fire. A large cordon of semi-pasta was cooking, and there was a bristle of agitation amongst the men. They were armed with captured Italian and German carbines, thick grenades and submachine guns, and their hunger was almost a smell in its own right. One being, the hungry Hydra, turned its several heads towards him. Most were puffing anxiously on cigarettes, the looks of men prepared to kill without question. Everyone seemed to know who he was. Major Giorgio Huntington, the top British agent in Italy, was a man they respected. One man stood up slowly and examined him, as if he were a peach that might be bruised beyond use. Tan-faced, seedy grey eyes with a pencil moustache, the man was wearing a blackberry and a long black leather trench coat. A submachine gun hung low across his chest. It was Walter Odissio, known as Captain Valerio, 
head of the Italian Communist Partisans of Northern Italy, a big noise in this hilly region of the Montferrat Hills east of Turin. Giorgio, my friend, at last, Valeri said with a smile, reaching forward, arms outstretched to embrace him. Stepping forward as Valeria's arms went around him in a bear hug, Huntington permitted himself a brief smile. It was Valeria's breath of stale cigarettes and coffee. It's good to see you again. Once I got your message, I came as soon as I could. Good man, Giorgio. I knew you would. Here, have some coffee. We have plenty. Valerio said. Picking up a cracked mug, he poured the coffee and handed it to him. You must be thirsty after your trek here. Huntington nodded and took a sip. It tasted warm and bitter, and he drank it all in a mouthful. It was god-awful, and he tried not to show it. Glad I got here with breaking dawn, he said, wiping beads of sweat from his brow. It's starting to get very warm out there. Of course, of course. It'll be another hot day, my friend, especially for the fascist, Valeria said, grinning broadly. Still harrying the local army posts? Huntington replied with a wry smile. Valerio chuckled. But of course, my friend, we ambushed a small army convoy yesterday morning and captured ourselves a little fascist pig for our trouble. He leaned forward and his eyes widened as he tapped the side of his nose. This one could be special. Huntington stroked his chin. How special? A junior minister in Mussolini's government. Valerio said with a toothy smile. Huntington's eyebrows raised. Ah, now you're interested, Valerio teased. Trust me, my friend, it is the truth, and I want you to interrogate him. Find out if he knows anything important enough that I can ransom him back to the fascist government, he said, rubbing his finger and thumb together, a crooked smile of satisfaction breaking open on his face. Although I just killed a pig. Huntington knew well enough from past experience that Valerio could be a callous brute. His ruthlessness with fascists he captured knew no bounds. A junior minister, you say? Valeria's eyes lit up with a big grin and nodded. I trust he's still in a good enough condition to question. It was the last time I saw him, Valeria said nonchalantly. You want to see him now? Huntington shrugged. Might as well, now I'm here. Now then, let's have a good look and see what the juniors room is saying. Lots of, lots of good feedback here, Gary. So uh, if you're going to watch the recording, just free, freeze it right now and just read through what people are saying. Because um, this is one of the great features of pop-up submissions. One of the glories of the, of the garden. Um, so you got initially a pretty good reaction, actually, for the concept. I think people are really intrigued by that. I was intrigued by that. And it made me think of Day of the Jackal, which I think is 50 years old this week, actually. Congratulations to all concerned on that. Uh, it kind of changed the, um, the nature of uh, uh, that genre as well, actually, I have to say. Um, so, just scrolling back a little bit, um, I'm just... Yeah, Lex said... Uh, a number of people said, yeah, interesting concept. Uh, Lex said, wow, how bad has the situation become when you're asking Hitler for help? I think it's great. Uh, and then he goes on to say, when life gives, gives you Hitler, make Hitler aid. Great. Um, intriguing premise says Kate. Stronger sense the protagonist will get, uh, will give the blurb extra punch. Goodbye, says Vicky. Jeff, who's done our narration, always interesting to hear from the narrators. They see it slightly differently. Some good writing, but for me, a little too much description. The writing was chunky in parts, needs editing. I didn't really engage with the Huntington character, but worked. Um, has the elements of good story. Not sure what that means, Jeff, but anyway. Lots and lots of great comments, though. I think it would be nice to hear from Robert. Is this your, your sort of, your kettle of fish? Would you normally read books like this? Yeah, I, I probably would. Um, I quite like the. I definitely like, like the concept. 
Um, it really, it is slightly well well trod ground, but World War Two, I mean. But um, I thought it did a, a decent job of uh, of of the of executing the concept. I thought it, it opened quite well. It really um, built the, the the scene up. You really got a sense of the place. Um, I think it suffered a bit after we sort of got into the scene. I, f- I found the dialogue is so we started out going on about him having a cup of coffee and things like that. And I think it just needed to to, to keep moving there. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing that was lacking for me, and I think this is what Jeff has said in the chat room as well, is that you don't really get any connection with the character. We don't really know anything about him. We just kind of, he's just kind of, you know, the, the plot device that, that's taking us into the scene at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think we need a bit more depth there. But I think it's definitely got, you know, good, the, the good grounding to go on to be something that would... Uh, definitely be worthwhile publishing yeah it's an intriguing idea definitely but i i have to feel i i agree with you for me it felt a bit too much like a briefing actually mm. yeah mo yeah i i agree i i really agree exactly what you said there was a really good sense of place but not so much a good sense of character um so so you did get it, it and i think you could spread out the description more there was a lot of densely packed description and stuff but i never connected with the lead character and i don't know why i would necessarily want to spend a long period of time with him or why he is special yeah yeah and, and unique in any way yeah. um it was it was kind of you know a, a, this is going to be an interesting plot and it seemed to be a very plot driven yeah. thing because it's obviously this which is a fantastic premise i do agree i love a good world war ii thing and a what if on world war ii is really interesting and and this is a really interesting what if um but i have to care about the person who's doing it I have to kind of care about the person who's trying to make this happen. It can't just be plot-centered, or you could just plug anybody in. So yeah. I think it just needs more work on the characterization. Yeah, yeah, I think that's opinion. right. I think that's absolutely right. Let's just see how the uh, the numbers are looking. So we all like the title, actually. Genius huh? Room, Robert, you, my... Uh, we all, we've all given it um, 60. Um, Robert liked the blurb a lot. Um, I did too, actually. I like the concept. I like the concept. I think it sounds quite commercial. Yeah, I like the concept. I thought the blurb could have um, spiced it a little bit more, like yeah. made it more judgy. Yeah, yeah. and we're all yeah, in love I, I I just just Go on, Robert. I was saying I really like the last sentence. I thought that was strong enough to make me go, oh, okay, that's a perspective I've not thought of before. So that's mm-hmm. probably what got it over the line for me. Definitely. That. Fantastic. Yes, okay. A creditable start there, Gary. Um, remember, it's 71, which is a very big school that um, anyone's going to have to beat if they are to be this month's winner. You've got a 60. Nothing to be ashamed of. Let's have a look at the very next submission. When you join our weekly huddle, certain things happen. No, not that. Bring your writing, your book titles, your blurbs, anything really, for expert and sympathetic input. In confidence. Other websites charge a fortune for this kind of thing. In Latopia, the oldest community for writers on the net is included in your modest subscription. Latopia, we're here for you. We are. (laughs) And you're here for us too, isn't that wonderful? This is our second submission of the day, and it's called The Last Man. Historical fiction. Oh, and there's always those QR codes there. You can scan those, have a bit of fun. See where Tom wants you to go to. Uh, I'll read you Tom's blurb. When Santa Claus entered a Texas bank just before Christmas in 1927, no one expected him to pull a gun. The fake white beard hid his identity from his neighbours while he and three others took everything 
but outside, armed citizens assembled, motivated by a new reward for dead bank robbers. By the time it all played out, one died in the gunfight, one was executed in the electric chair, one swung from a rope in a mob lynching, and one survived to find unexpected hope beyond all his wrong turns. Let me um, smooth myself over a bit there. It's live. It's the mother of all thunderstorms going on outside here, guys. Um, and I understand also from one of our Latopians uh, in, in northern Italy as well. So it could be going on all over the continent right now. If we suddenly go dark, I mean, that's what's happened. One of the connections is severed. But that's the fun of doing things live. Let me tell you about Tom. I live... I lived in the small Texas community where residents still preserve and maybe elaborate on the history of the Santa Claus bank robbery. I currently live in Austin, Texas, where I've been able to conduct extensive research on the story at the State Library and Archives. The Last Man is my first novel, uh, though I am the author of a non-fiction book with Broadman and Holman. I'm a member of the Writers' League of Texas, as well as a monthly writers' critique group. I wonder if you hang out with Tex, who comes on our show very regularly and is nothing but pure gold, actually. And if you haven't heard of Tex Thompson from Texas, you need to. Um, we have, I'm delighted to tell you, we have Kay to give it her very best and our best reading. The Last Man by Tom Goodman, read by Kay. Chapter One. Cisco, 1927. Lewis. Lewis Davis hefted the borrowed pistol again. The weight still surprised him. The steel barrel and cylinder were cold in the December morning, but the longer he held the wood-trimmed grip, it warmed in his palm as if it were moulding to his hand. It felt alive. He felt alive. The two men in the front seat of the sedan didn't want him in the heist. They had never said it, but he knew. They wanted someone like them, hard, experienced in this kind of thing. Lewis didn't qualify. Back in Wichita Falls, he had a factory job and a wife and three small children. What he didn't have was money or excitement. The man next to Lewis in the back seat had persuaded the others to bring him along. Lewis swayed left and right to the motion of the car along with the rest of the men, as if he were in syncopation with them. He would prove to them that they had made a good decision to include him. Lewis raised the gun in front of him, imagining what it would be like to point the weapon at someone. He pretended to fire it and mimed the pistol kicking back on him. Henry. Henry Helms sat beside Lewis, bemused at the simulated pistol fire. He had loaned Lewis one of his own handguns for the job. Henry figured the man could use a little adventure in his life. All he needed to do with the weapon was look threatening. Like Lewis, Henry had a wife and kids, and for their sake he had tried, unsuccessfully, to find work after his release from the state penitentiary in Huntsville on an armed robbery charge. Not that unemployment was any great regret. He'd been unable to muster enthusiasm to show up for some square John job. Nothing had stirred his blood until he was told the plans for this heist. And as the car reached the outskirts of Cisco, his senses began that familiar sharpening. Bobby. Behind the wheel, Robert Bobby Hill slowed the sedan as he passed the city limits sign. He began the downshift. Find the gear, release the clutch, feel the teeth engage. 
He smiled at the smooth execution. Bobby was 19, unmarried, and if there was one thing he had learned in his brief life, it was that cars were easier to figure out than people. The new Buick he drove was a beauty, painted the midnight blue of a deep lake, and the enclosed cabin and the suspension it rode on were both luxurious. The owner was a Wichita Falls oil man who liked to keep it parked in front of his house for everyone to see. Bobby had no trouble finding where the man stowed the key under the floor mat. The Master 6 wasn't the fastest engine ever built, but it was plenty powerful to outrun most cars if it came to a chase. The man sitting next to him in the front seat had recruited him as the wheelman. Bobby had never pointed a gun at anyone before. His two-year sentence in Huntsville was for robbing an unoccupied store in the middle of the night. But the man told him to carry for this job, just in case. Needs must when the devil drives, the man had said and then let out a surprised laugh at the unintended joke and slapped Bobby on the back. Marshall Next to Bobby, 24-year-old Marshall Ratliff rolled down the front passenger window and rested his elbow on the frame and smiled as the car passed landmarks familiar to him. This was his town and the heist was his plan. Marshall had no family in Cisco anymore. His mother had sold her cafe and moved to Fort Worth. His brother was in prison again and his wife had divorced him and taken their two small boys away while he was in Huntsville for the Valera bank job. Still, plenty of people would recognise him here. He had planned for this. He raised a white Santa beard to his face and tied the string behind his head. Pretty good reactions there actually, Tom, if you yeah. uh, look at the... Yeah. People are saying, definitely drawn in, says Arkay. Johnny, I'd read on based on this. Title a bit weak, though. Galadriel says, really enjoying this. Andy, familiar characters, but nicely sketched. Annie, get a sense the author really knows these characters. Mo. Yeah, I I really like this opening, and I think it's a risk kind of doing the, um, mm. you know, just listing everybody like that and having that many points of view. Mm. Um, well, it's not really from their points of view, you know, but there's little mm. internal head moments. But I think... It, as a setup, it's really going to work because if we don't know which ones die and which ones live, and they're making us care about them all, I think that's a nice setup. And I was intrigued by all of them. Um, as somebody said in the genius room, some of the characters are very familiar, but they all had a, they all had little nuances that I found really engaging, um, and it and it set it up. It was it was almost like the, I it felt very cinematic to me. Mm, this was yes. the drive, and you were having. You know the drive to the to the heist and you were having the close-ups of people before the, the big action starts and every it gets bloody um yes. and it, and it had that very cinematic feel to me i liked it i i yeah i, I think that's absolutely it. the right word it felt like that to me uh robert yeah i think i'm a bit uh out on a limb compared to everyone else here it didn't it it didn't quite work for me but that was more because i I kind of wanted to stay with one character and stick with them. I didn't really like the yeah. whole jumping oh. around. I sort of, I wanted to build a relationship with one character and then because what yeah. I often quite like is seeing all the characters through, through that character's eyes and getting their perspective on it. And then maybe later on in the novel, seeing it from another character's perspective, but I would yeah. rather just stay with the same character. You're, I do you're, think that I really get the concept. You're not works. out on a limb, 
We we are out on a limb, you and me. Actually, <laughs> I think I think exactly what what Mo's pointed out. The cinema. If this were a movie, we would just it would work perfectly, yeah. and you can see it working like that. I think I think it's so much harder in, in in prose to make it work when you introduce multiple characters. I have to say though. Um, it does look as if the genius room are really identifying and uh, investing in these characters. So maybe you are pulling it off. But I think it's a hell of a difficult way to start um, a, a book and quite a risky way as well, actually. I mean, yeah. you know, it's, it's a I high stakes thing. Yeah, it's not something that you would advise if you were doing a writing course. You wouldn't say, no. oh, yeah, and, and, and please do, like, short <laughs> paragraphs with multiple perspectives exactly. because that's a winner. No, exactly. but, but I think it was a risk. But I think... I think if he, if he continues to do that, writing that way, it would get annoying. But as an intro and a setup, that then you're going to get into the big scene, and then we're going to hopefully follow one person for a chapter and another person for a whole chapter or whatever he's going to do. Or maybe somebody dies pretty soon. I don't know. But I think as a setup, it was a nice, it was a nice little way in. Yeah, it was a risk. Yeah, he's taking yeah. a risk. Yeah, it's that's Russian right. roulette writing-wise. It's writing Russian roulette. Is it what totally he's doing. is. It totally is, Tom. Yeah, I don't know if you're intending to do that. The thing is that it does make it harder on you. Um, it's the sort of thing that um, a writer with an established sort of readership could do um, because they, they, you know, they they know it's just going to work in any case because yeah. people are going to say, "Oh, look, isn't he being exciting and different?" Um, I would advise first-time writers not to try to think quite as hard as that because beginning a book is bloody hard in any case you know <laughs> why make it harder on yourself but you know i can't go against the genius room and they they know what they're talking about you've got a very credible 64 there tom well done two manuscripts in let's see what's next make a priority submission priority.latopia.com and here we go this is from eduardo and QR code as well, jolly good. It's historical fiction. It's called The War for the Heart of the World. The year is 1522, and the world is breaking apart. In the east, a new power is rising, the Ottoman Empire. Facing it, on the island of Rhodes, are the Knights Hospitallers, the last crusaders. The siege of their island fortress is war as it has never been fought before. A war of swords and armour against cannons and muskets. It's the war of the Italian engineer Gabriele Tadino, recruited by the knights to lead them. It is the war for the heart of the world. I'll tell you about Eduardo. Uh, having had 15 books published, congratulations, by publishers ranging from Granta to Berlin, that's B-I-R, I think it might be time to get a literary agent. <laughs> well, I don't know. You might not need one, actually. Um, don't, don't, don't repeat that. Um, my novels have been praised by Bernard Cornwall, quote, a splendid novel, and Con Egulden, brilliant. While the bookseller called my last non-fiction work Warrior, A Life of War in Anglo-Saxon Britain, a riveting, brilliantly written account. I'm a writer, historian, and all-round word worker. I thought that was woodworker to begin with, but it's not. It's word worker. And we have an equally um, renaissance man, I think. That's the right expression to read it. For it is Lex. The War for the Heart of the World by Eduardo Albert, read by Lex. He was rushing the boys towards the guns. Even as the thought struck Fra Gabriel Tadino, he heard the shout. Down! 
The boys scattered, diving for the ground, but Tadino, still standing, had his legs taken from under him as the cannonball struck. Splinters of wood, brick, and stone hissed over his head. Tadino sat up. I should have known it was you who knocked me over, he said to the young man beside him in the road. Fra Jean Perisot leaned forward and pulled a long splinter of wood from the wall above Tadino's head and held it up in front of the Italian. That would have gone through your eye if I hadn't, said Fra Jean. The Grand Master would not have been pleased with me, not when he gave me charge of the best engineer of the age. I do not need somebody looking after me, said Tadino. Then you should not have taken vows in the religion. Now you are under obedience. Before Tadino could muster a retort, he was stopped by the sound of a child, crying. Looking round, the two men saw one of the boys, the smallest of them, lying against a wall, with another, his brother, squatting beside him. What's wrong with him? asked Tadino. The boy looked round, tear tracks stark through the dust on his cheeks. I don't know, senor. Tadino took the little boy's hand and, as he did so, his eyes opened, lighting on the man leaning over him. So sorry, senor, the little boy said. I was not sleeping. Andrea, said his brother, are you all right? See, si, Peter, I hit my head when I dived down. Take Andrea home, Peter, said Fra Jean Parisot. But the elder brother, looking up at the young knight with the hard-earned suspicion of a boy who had known grief and trial, shook his head. We don't have a home, master. The boy's face was pinched, and his collarbones poked like bowed knives at the material of his thin shift. He had clearly been giving most of the food he scavenged to his younger brother for Andrea, while Finn did not have the worn, famished look of his sibling. Tadino looked at Fra Jean Perisot. Let them come. There is food for the children. Fra Jean Perisot looked doubtfully at Andrea. He is very young. I am nearly six, said Andrea indignantly. From beyond the walls of the city, another cannon roared. Peter pointed towards the sound. Master, the safest place in Rhodes is in the tunnels. There the cannon cannot find us. Ha, said Tadino. This boy... Your name is Peter? Understands better than all the superstition-ridden fools that bleed about being buried alive when in the earth they are safe from the cannon. There are other dangers underground, began Fra Jean Perisot. This is an underground war, said Didino, standing up and hauling the boys to their feet. Still holding the boys' hands, the Italian looked into their earnest faces. You will be my ears, and with your sharp senses we will detect and defeat the Grand Turk's miners. He let go the boys' hands and cuffed their heads. Get on, we are keeping the Grand Master waiting. But as the two boys set off down the road with the others that Tadino was training, Fra Jean Perisot took hold of the Italian's arm. My soul reproaches me. Children so young are not made for war. My soul reproaches me similarly, Fra Jean. But then my rational mind answers with a question of its own. From whom should I find the ears to listen underground for the Grand Turk's miners? Think well on this, Fra Gabriel. Their lives and their deaths shall be upon your soul. Tadino looked after the party of boys, running down the street calling and pushing each other while around them the city of their birth lay besieged. I fear they may be, Fra Jean. He looked back to the young man and his eyes, seldom somber, glinted anew. But now we are keeping the master waiting, and I fear that might be even worse for my soul. So once again, let's peer into the hearts and minds and souls, indeed, of the genius room. Um, Vicky says, we only know where, where we often blurb, if I'm guessing right. And he says, straight on the action, like that, then went to write this and got a bit lost. 
Ah, paying attention is so hard, isn't it? Um, Vicky, oops, guess wrong. We're in Rhodes, not Malta. Yeah, that's. I, I was interested in that too because I know not. I, I've heard of the siege of Malta, know a bit about that, but Rhodes, nothing at all. So that's quite interesting, I think, from my point of view. Learn about that. Annie, writing is good, but I'm not pulled in. Vagabond, we know it's a war because of the blurb, but we have no way of knowing how far through it we are. Writing's good, says Hannah, but I'm not getting to know the main character. I don't know where this story's going apart from into war. Mo. Yeah, I didn't, again, I didn't connect necessarily with the characters. Uh, they were They kept telling us how they're feeling instead mm. of showing us how they're feeling. It was a lot of... Um, uh, you know, oh, I am, I am perplexed by this, or I am, I, I am, my soul hurts from that, or whatever. I, I, yeah. I, I didn't necessarily connect with, um, with either of the characters, yeah. uh, and I didn't have any sense that there was any conflict for them. They seemed pretty sure of, you know, he seemed pretty sure of, well, if I need to sacrifice the kids, I'll sacrifice the kids. He sure. might tell you that his heart was aching, but he didn't seem particularly broken about that concept. It seemed very Machiavellian to me. It was like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know. I didn't get that. I didn't get that. Um, wh- what you want in a character like that is that real wrench, that real, my religion tells me something, my soul tells me something, but for the sake of the war, the sake of victory, I'm going to do this. And you have to have those, those moments, which you get in epic things sometimes, but, yeah. but having it in the first couple of pages when we don't know or care about these characters, isn't the right time to show us that because you're not giving us any sympathy for those characters. Yeah, and we've got to spend the whole book with them. Yeah, well identified. Let me just uh, update. Uh, SM Worsley says, I love the visual imagery, like the splinter being pulled from the wall. Yeah, and, and, and tear tracks and the dust on the face, though. I find the dialogue a bit laboured and explainy. It is. Uh, Galadriel says, What am I thinking of Star Trek when listening to the dialogue between Frajan and Tadino? Mm-hmm. And Lex, of course, is our narrator on this, says, Reading this at the start, I was a bit confused if, mm, by the action. At first, I thought Gabrielli had his legs taken from under him by the cannonball. It took a bit to be clear that he'd been actually saved by someone else and the cannonade missed him. And Johnny says, Yeah, me too, Robert. Yeah, it didn't do much for me, to be honest. Um, I mean, I really do like the concept. Um, mm. It's something that I'd read. It's something I don't know a lot about. Um, it sounds interesting, but the execution just didn't seem to work at all for me. I thought the, the opening was very cinematic, um, and that, that does work well on, on film, but didn't really quite execute so well here, I don't think. Yeah. And then it kind of just lost me after that point. I didn't really understand at what point we were in the battle. I didn't really understand who these two characters were. The, the dialogue was very stilted. I think Gladriel's comment is spot on. It was very sort of strange and didn't really uh, connect with me at all. So I think I think there's something there, but I think it just needs a lot of reworking, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I, I, have you ever heard? I mean, I'm exposing my ignorance here. Have you ever heard of the Siege no, of Rhodes? I, I haven't. Maybe, maybe it's not real. Thing, but <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, who knows? Who's pulling our legs out? No, he wouldn't do that. Edward, I wouldn't do that. Heavens above, of course. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and where is the chat? The screen is showing, says Ed. I wonder if that's our Eduardo. I don't know. It could be, isn't it? It's the first two names. Oh, um, yeah. It's from the Genius Room. This is from inside the colony itself. 
actually Ed that's where it's coming from it's not just a figment of anyone's imagination these are real people actually and you're you're getting a slice through their first reaction I have to emphasize this all right because uh, there have been suggestions over the past week or two that people get unique access to these submissions before they see them which is how the genius room can can be so on the ball this is not true the only people who see submissions are our submissions manager Emily the person who narrates it and me I have to say it to assemble the show everyone else sees it and they're reacting in real time and that's that's the beauty of it let's see how we're doing here ed edward you got a 55 solid 55 there um we're so, johnny says he's he's contradicting me see so i don't know if that proves my point or proves he's right actually siege of rose was a, a real thing and yeah i didn't doubt it for a moment um i think we uh we need to have a word with mo in a moment don't we yeah <laughs> want to kill someone but don't fancy time in prison then kill them with a pen on paper all you have to do is just put the person of your choice into a short story and let your imagination free kill them however you like with a knife or a gun poison might be fun just kill with words 500 words in fact then send it to us at litopia.com forward slash hunters killing the literary way revenge is best served on paper Short Story Hunters, where you can have your cake and eat it too. So far, we haven't been arrested. Oh, and whatever you do, don't really kill anyone. Yeah, let's, uh, let's have a word with Mo, shall we? See what's <laughs> going on in Mo's world. Um, Mo, Mo's, this is Mo's world. I'm just going to <laughs> cut to your wonderful website, actually. Because we can see at a glance what's going on there. New York Times best-selling writer. Mo, it's been a long, strange journey, hasn't it? It's taken you all the way from where? Middle America to... From, yeah, from Pennsylvania, yeah. East Coast. Uh, you East know, Coast. In between, yeah, in between yeah. New York and, and uh, D.C. Yeah, and, Pennsylvania. And via being a serving wench in the Tower of London here. I, one of my first jobs when I came over here as a medieval serving wench in the Tower of London, learning to carry tankards and do all that kind of stuff who were you serving mostly japanese tourists and stuff. tourists mostly tourists mostly tourists and then you would you would actually <laughs> serve them their meat with you know knives in it and and tank it. and then you would break into song and we would have to do these like song things and get them all singing and it was yeah that's it was a job. I, it was I, all, all I wish <laughs> is that there's a bit of video footage from that time. Is there any video was, we can play? It was no, in the days shame. before people had camera phones. It was oh, in really? the days before. That's great. Yeah. That's a great shame, yeah. isn't Thank it? Goodness. So, Thank yeah. Uh, so, didn't they think it was a little bit strange that they were being served by a, a wench with a very strong East Coast accent? I oh, know. I, I, I didn't. I, w- I would do an English accent. I'd, I'd do oh, a London accent. Oh, you so, put it on? Yeah. Oh, would you? Just like Madonna did. Yeah. No, hopefully mm. better than Madonna. <laughs> I was an actor at the time, so. Indeed, <laughs> indeed, better. yeah. Which is kind of what <laughs> writers have to be increasingly, actually. But yeah. let's let's get up to speed with your, your publishing. Funny. So, what's what's the next um, uh, assault you're making on the? Uh, it's not YA. It's, it's is it middle grade or a bit younger than that? Yeah, well, a bit younger. Yeah, the latest thing is the Agent Moose series, um, and this one is it's published with Macmillan in the US, but it's coming out with Scholastic because oh, things yeah. change and get bought by different people and stuff. Sure. Um, yeah. So in the UK, Okay, it's coming out with, with Scholastic in um, in January of next year, and it's already oh. out in America. And the new the new book in the same series, there's a book of three books, is coming out with Macmillan in the US in August next month. And is it is it is it really is it really yourself or um, read aloud? 
it's 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 graphic novel so it's kind of hard to read aloud because the pictures are also telling the story so it's totally it's it's totally it's it's a it's a graphic novel that's for kind of six plus six to nine year olds i would say um mm. so it's that's the kind of sweet spot it, yeah and and with graphic novels i think you can really um have fun with the vocabulary and stuff that maybe you couldn't do for that age range in another book because yeah. kids can clean vocabulary with the pictures a lot better you can put in some more challenging stuff and they get it so here's the thing, right? So here's the thing. You know, Mo O'Hara's long, strange journey. You can read more about it on, on her website underneath her. But so many people, I mean, we get quite a few submissions here, actually. So many people write something for their kids and the, their kids yeah. like it. And then they think, oh, I'm the next uh, JK Rowling. Look. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you actually make that transition from, oh, I think I'll write something for the kids to, my God, I'm a best-selling uh, author. How did yeah. that happen? I kind of wrote before I had kids and then I used the time that I, cause I was an actor and I started writing for performance. So I, I, I did children's theater as well as adult theater and oh, I did storytelling. Right. I toured as yeah. a solo storyteller and I wrote some of my own stuff. And after the shows, people would kind of say, Oh, do you write books too? Because we'd love to buy your things. So I started hmm. to think, Oh, maybe I should write as well. Yeah. And then make a bit, make a bit of money. Yeah. Exactly. Well, also oh. make a bit of money, bit of, bit of job security. And then I got pregnant with my first child and, um, your work as an actor is kind of limited to only pregnant people when you're pregnant or voiceovers, you know, it's, it's kind of limited the roles that you can play when you're gigantic. So um, I took the opportunity for a slight career break and did a writing course oh. and, uh, and went, I love this because in acting, I'm telling someone else's story yeah. and I enjoyed that and I loved it. Yeah. But in writing, I'm telling my story. Yeah. And I really liked I get that. It. So, so, so we've got probably about half our, our audience actually have, have got some kind of book that they think they could actually secretly dash out and be really successful yeah. for kids. So what's the best single piece of advice you can give to people who are thinking, well, yeah, I've got this idea and I've read it aloud to the kids or the grandkids or something like that. Yeah. What's, where would you point them? What's the general my, piece of my Go biggest ahead. advice would be read more stuff in the area that you're pitching it because mm. a lot of times when i have done courses and stuff with people they say oh i've written this brilliant book it's for three to twelve year olds and i'm like yeah no it's really yeah. not for three to twelve yeah. year olds that's not yeah. possible so you need to kind of go it could be the most amazing story but if you don't know where to pitch it and you don't know where to you know how long to make it how old to make your main characters how many subplots to have because of what your readership can cope with yeah you're ne it's never going to land so my main Keep thing reading. would be go and read books in the area you want to write in yeah totally and, and then you'll so know true. how to and you'll you learn all the basics like that yeah, won't you actually you won't make all the silly easy. mistakes that we see quite yeah. Often. yeah 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 people come That's up with incredible advice. premises and ideas or an incredible character but then they yeah. maybe make it you know, 50,000 words for a young book, or they yeah, make it exactly. too short. Yeah, so, so yeah. just yeah, do the research. Good. All right. So um, if you are just to, just about to press the button, I'll make a pop-up submission. Uh, think twice about that, because uh, Mo is absolutely right. I just want to um, ask Robert, because we've never had Robert on the show before. So it's really his historic moment, actually. Um, I just want to ask you uh, one or two things about narrating. Because sure. uh, a lot of people are interested in narrating and doing audiobooks and stuff like that. And I know you're, you're really keen on drama and so on. 
Yeah. I guess same question to you, really. So if someone's interested in either doing a bit of narrating or maybe doing an audio book or something like that, what's the best advice you can give them? How to start out? Um, it's it's harder than it sounds. Uh, in the, yeah, you know, that's for sure. It takes several takes to do it. Um, I, I really enjoy doing the reading for pop submissions, but I've always steered away from ever going near doing a whole audio book because it it will eat up your time massively because it takes so, so many takes. You've really yeah. got to get to that professional quality, yeah. and that's actually quite difficult to do. You need proper equipment and things. Yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, to start off with, just. Um, the, the best thing to do, I think, is y if you really like um, narrating, you probably like acting, you like that kind of char mm. character kind of getting into the character's mindset, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, uh, read, read plays, read uh, other books, you know, even if you read them aloud to yourself, it, it gets you into the rhythm of, yeah. of how to... Um, uh, no, Same I, as Mo is saying, actually, isn't it? Yeah. Same basic, yeah. yeah. If you want to, you know, to send stuff out to a particular audience, be part of that audience. Yeah. Makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, we certainly appreciate yeah. your, you know, your your commitment to reading, and I've got to say, I think we've got the best possible team of narrators here. I think they're amazing, Absolutely. actually. I mean, they're they too good. Some, some, yeah, yeah. Sometimes they lift. They lift. You know, I have to think. Oh, I, I don't want to listen yeah. to this. I've just got to look at the words on the page because it's sounding too good. And there's a kind of a mismatch <laughs> between my reaction to the words and you know how I'm reacting to the reading. So, just tone it down a bit, Robert. Can you please? <laughs> So sometimes, sometimes you just can't help it. There's, if, the, if there's a good voice there uh, and there's a good character, you can often they're often the much better submissions to read, even if the the writing itself isn't that great or yeah. the plot's a bit tired. If there's a great character there, you can really easily bring it to life. Yeah. So yeah, and yeah. that and that shows a, a really good point for anyone who is writing dialogue at home. Always read it out loud. Because like yes. we can hear how good or bad dialogue is because the narrator is showing exactly. us. If you're sitting at home by your desk, read it out loud, you know, or get someone else to read it and out loud, and advice. you can hear it. And you're brilliant like, advice. oh, okay, that's a bit sticky. That's yeah, a bit stodgy. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And yeah. I think sometimes, actually, I mean, I, you know, my advice to narrators has been right from the beginning: just just to try to do it one take. And if you stumble over any words, then that's not your fault. Actually, it's it, what it means is the the author probably hasn't done what Mo says read it out loud see if it works if it's not working then that's good feedback for them too I've got a question here from Monster Sounds so I'm just going to um, answer that straight away actually uh, Monster Sounds with Isaac hello Isaac or should I call you Monster um, two agents have asked to read my full manuscript at the start of March it's a long time ago I've not heard back from either of them yet. When would it be all right to contact them to ask what's happening now, actually? March, April, May, June. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it's well past. If they were asked, you know, asked for the full thing, you know, presumably you, you went through the standard sort of procedure, which is a queer relation, and they said, yeah, let's have a look at the full thing. Yeah, you chase them now. If they haven't bitten your hand off for it now, don't hold your breath. Because if agents see something good, they will usually get back to you really quickly, okay? So don't, don't you know, think that maybe emails have gone astray or something. They would have chased you down by now. So I, th I suspect the chances of success are probably less than 50%. But absolutely chased. You can do it nicely, but definitely chased. Don't be intimidated by what you might hear elsewhere on the internet, or maybe even read sometimes on agents' websites, actually. After all, you've got to remember, writers are 
the essence of what we do in this whole business okay you are our new product development area without you the business would not exist so we have to be respectful towards you and you don't need to be respectful towards us although it's nice if you are this is the fourth submission of the day it's from don it's crime and it's called Side Hustle. I love that title. I don't know why. It's just it's stuck in my mind. I love it. Side Hustle. I love it. Uh, Side Hustle is a story, says Don, of a soldier turned hitman who wants to retire but can't. It's the story of a shady lawyer searching for a score before it's too late. It's about a Dixie Mafia shot caller and the trophy wife who despises him. The down-on-a-luck bartender, an opioid mule boyfriend who'll do anything she asks. It's about a corrupt police detective who tries to stop them all while saving himself. It's a story about consequences, all of them deserved. <laughs> Not sure we always deserve our consequences. But maybe we do in your writing. I'll tell a very, very short description about you, Don. Chicago-based crime novelist and screenwriter. That's short, that's sweet, but not, I think, as sweet as the reading we're going to get from Barbara. Side Hustle by Don Logan, read by Barbara. Clint Hawkins peered through the scope and took stock of the man he was about to kill. Not that he knew much. His name was Harold Foster, a 57-year-old gangster, divorced, no children, lived alone scheduled to testify before the grand jury come Tuesday. One bad guy ratting out another. At least that's what Theo, the man who hired him, had said. Of course, it could be a lie. Clint never was 100% sure what Theo's true motivations were or who really was behind the job. That was the deal, and that was fine by him. When they first started working together, Theo would tell him the target was a child molester, a rapist, or maybe a smack dealer. Clint had told himself it made a difference. Maybe it did back then. Now, he wasn't so sure. Clint had one hard, unbreakable rule. No women or children. As long as the money was good and the guy was bad, he was good to go. All of which brought him here, to a rooftop in Florida. One shot, 50 large, then he'd be done, free of it all. His oversized watch told him his heart rate was 90 beats per minute. Aye, but not too bad. Back on the glass, Clint watched as Harry pressed up from his lazy boy and padded out of view. Poor bastard just bought himself another minute of life and didn't even know it. Clint thought about the meeting downstairs, the one he just left. He remembered how the group leader had extended his arms out to the semicircle of dry drunks, signalling time for the serenity prayer, how everyone had grabbed the hands of those on either side, heads bowed, throats dry. What was the leader's name again? Oh yeah, Jean. He looked like a Jean. Real thin, dressed in old denim, shaggy hair, short cropped beard, thumb ring, running shoes. He introduced himself as an alcoholic and a drug addict as if that made him superior. Double victim. What the hell did he know about being a victim? The meeting had followed a well-worn pattern, the same as always. Jean opened with the usual housekeeping stuff, meeting times, a reminder about donations, a scolding for some asshole who left a cigarette butt in the urinal. After that, a few people rose to tell their stories, to recount all the bad shit they'd done on account of booze or drugs, sometimes booze and drugs. 
As they spoke, people in the crowd would smile and nod, carelessly reliving the good old days. Clint took another peek through the scope. Still no sign of Harry. Where was he? Getting a sandwich, maybe. His last meal. Jesus, what the hell was he doing here? About to kill a guy for what? Money? He blinked away from the scope and twisted a kink out of his neck. His mind returned to the meeting, stumbling on it as he did. Was it a mistake to go? Would any of them remember him? Nah, probably not. They were too wrapped up in themselves, in their own lame civilian bullshit. The middle-aged guy with the bus cut and thirty work boots there because his parole officer sent him. Mr. Holier than thou long time sober, dishing out life lessons. The teary-eyed chick with a busted marriage. A few DUIs, a lost job here and there. No real pain. No real loss. Not like meetings at Bragg. He could see them now. Lost souls, fresh back from the sand. Men who'd been his brothers, even if he didn't know them. Some slumped in wheelchairs, knee-bouncing, white-knuckling cups of black coffee. A few would stare off at distant memories, heads jerking at screams only they could hear. Others flexed their new limbs, wincing in disbelief as the plastic and metal clicked. Clint would wait it out, go through the motions, say what the VA head shrinkers wanted to hear, tell them just enough to get the scripts pills by the bag full. Zoloft, Seroquel, Prozac, Halcyon. Ups, downs, pills to stop you from going sideways. Pills to counteract other pills. Pills you had to crush so they'd work. Others you pray would just stop. He'd had them all. Okay, uh, lots and lots of fan- fabulous feedback from the genius room. They're called geniuses because they can do this instantly. You know, I mean, well, as I said, we do have people say, ah, they must read them in advance. They don't. They're that good. That good. Uh, Barbara, um, on the writer on this, says, I liked it. It was confident. I felt it could do the strongest sense of story. Too much detail in the AA meeting. Brief mention would be enough for now. I think most readers will have an image of AA meetings already. Is Jean etc. an important character? If not, I delete. Uh, I love the bit about the meeting at Bragg. All in all, I would have read on. Um, now, what else can I pick out, actually? There's so many great comments so Kate says uh, one last job trope nothing wrong with that well yeah but it is a trope Annie really liking this Hannah uh, about to retire but one last job is, is a well-worn trope I think for Hannah possibly too well well-worn um, yeah. <laughs> there is some discussion over the the name of your protagonist here Ashley Don Clint uh, I'll let you read that for yourself and uh, Rivergate, uh, no winter. Hello, Rivergate. I've gone a bit lost. Lots of people and different things. I know how you feel. I'm a little bit lost myself, Robert. Yeah, I, I thought it was a, a, a solid submission, actually. Um, I really like the title. I, mm. it. I think it's a very simple title, but it, it sticks with you. Um, I like the blurb, although it did make me think that it was a collection of short stories. I'm not sure mm. if it is, but that's, that's the way it kind of sounded. Um, and then the submission is kind of a strange one in that it was very cliched, you know, uh, cliched name, cliched kind of job, cliched kind of uh, he's an alcoholic, you know, he's, he's an addict yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. But then I don't know if that's what the genre and the readers in the genre wants it's probably Maybe not something do, I would necessarily actually. read yeah, yeah. and if that's what you know there's a lot of films a lot of books that kind of roll those tropes and a lot of people seem to constantly go back to them um, so I think I thought it hit all those beats 
Um, not an awful lot happened. Um, was mm. anything I thought you just kind of sat there with behind the scope. I suppose a lot of that kind of job is waiting around, but I suppose it is. Um, really. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it perhaps did need a little bit more something to happen uh, rather than just constantly recounting uh, yeah. what had already happened. Uh, yeah, that's solid, the point. Um, the thing is that, as you say, um, I mean, several people have said, yeah, there are lots of tropes at work here. But as you as you actually say, and I agree, um, readers often feel very comfortable. In fact, that's what they want. I'm I'm working my through my way through the Michael Connolly. I don't know if you've come across Michael Connolly Irv at the moment, who does hard boiled crime, and he does exactly that. I mean, it's trope after trope after trope, and people just like it. And he do, he does so do it very well. Lincoln lawyer, isn't it? That's the one. Was yeah. The link, yeah, yeah, yeah I've, yeah. I've read that. Yeah, I did. It was, I did like that because it was cliche, but I liked it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what people have been doing in lockdown. Actually, been just reading, you know, crap. <laughs> but that's all right. We enjoy it. We enjoy it, Mo. No, I think it's. I don't think there's any. If you do something interesting with a trope, and and it, it just gives you a shorthand, you can say, okay, yeah. this is a book about this person, but then do something a bit different with it. There are some things that just have too many connotations. Just don't call your character Clint, and then yes. have another character called Harry, because oh, Clint right. is yes, yes, Harry, oh, dear, just, yes. Just don't do it. Just, yeah. You're just no, you're was... just setting up things in the back of your reader's mind that they can't th- get rid of. Then yeah, I think that was um, done ironically, actually, but I, I don't yeah, like but, that sort of irony, really. Yeah, but then it's like, it just pulls you out. Yeah. It's something else to pull you out of the story. And yeah. the last thing you want in your first chapter is for your reader to be, you know, all meta and pulling out of the story. Like, mm, you want exactly. them to get involved in the story. Exactly. And also, there were a couple of other things. The, the line about, you know, the hitman, but I don't do women and children. That's yes. like, there was a whole film. There was that Jean Reno film, Leon. Like, that was yeah. his whole tagline. So, it was a hitman with a heart. It, yeah, Lovely. it's kind of been done. If, yeah. If, like, it was interesting. I, I just saw um, D- the dumbwaiter, Harold Pinter's the dumbwaiter in London, oh, yeah. and that's about two hit hitman waiting around to do a hit. And that's the whole thing. It's a two-hander play about two hitman kind of shooting the you know breeze before they before they do yeah. a hit on somebody. And I, w- I would say like look at something you know just different different uh, ideas of the hitman. I, I liked. I, I really liked the writing. Yeah, I, I kept I did, saying I did, I kept being stopped by these um, cliches and stuff. Yeah, but I did keep coming back because I really did like the writing. I thought, yeah. I, I thought, you know, he's a strong writer, and when yeah, he says he he's a strong writer, I think, um, I think he's got a really good sense of this character, and this character is actually a living, breathing person in his mind, and you got yes. that. Yes. So, uh, so, I, I so would what, go. So I would let's just, just the, clear out the, you know, some of let's the. Let's just think think aloud here. Actually, see if we can move move Don along slightly. So, um, is it is it is interesting to consider the hit person um and what's going on in their mind um you know in the moments leading up to killing someone um i i think some of the most popular videos on youtube actually are interviews with uh with, that i've been watching um with mafiosi uh hit hit people usually men yeah uh usually very fat people and um they have nothing going on in there at all actually yeah, yeah i've killed, killed 95 people yeah it's all right it's job yeah. they got nothing to say unfortunately so we are well off into the realm of fantasy i think here um yeah. and I th- the trick probably would be would be to 
uh, make us feel really torn and really conflicted. So on the one hand, we kind, yeah. of, we kind of, you know, not necessarily identifying, but certainly investing ourselves in the character. On the other hand, we're, we're going, oh, you're really going to kill someone? And, you know, you get us feeling like that from page one. That could be, uh, could be quite strong, couldn't it? But yeah, I, I think, and I think he is a real person. I just think there are some things that pull it up. Like he says, I'm killing for money. What am I doing? Well, you've been doing this for a long time. Exactly. So Pull yourself together. Yeah, we're like, but what's given you the epiphany? If we don't know what's yeah. caused this epiphany, we yeah. need to kind of yeah. feel something because, again, you're just telling us something. Yeah. I like the, the AA scene. It could have gone, it went on a little bit too long, maybe. Which but, is 100%. Um, yeah. Yeah, I like that. And there was a point somebody else made, I think it was Kate made about in the in the blurb, who is the protagonist? Yeah. It's a story of this, it's a story of this, it's a story of this. Yeah. But who's yeah. your protagonist in yeah. there? Yeah. Whose story really is it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Is that one you know you want to everyone do, so. likes your title don i think you should get that as a dot yeah, com or something just looking at the the rest of the words now what we're going to do is something a little bit different fingers crossed i haven't done this before Ah, oh, it's worked! Oh, I can't tell you how relieved I am. Um, so we've got a complete scorecard here now, giving you even more information. I haven't actually uh, got this functional before. So the first time we've been using it, but you can actually see submission by submission today. And what's highlighted in green are the winners of um, each specific category. So you can see if the blurb, for example, is Gary with the first one. People like the blurb a lot. Um, it's nicely distributed, actually, um, in terms of bang commercial appeal that will be you tom well done um and in terms of overall vote at the moment that is actually our don with 69 it's like our don i've never met don um and yeah i mean title is way up there really strong title but but there is one more submission and that could change everything this month and this is what it is it's from Elizabeth. It's women's fiction and is called Single Assassin. Single Assassin. Another good title. Some women leave childhood with tattoos or therapist bills. Lucy became an assassin. It worked well until she's hired to kill her own mother, an erotic fiction author who swapped her at birth for a bottle of rum. Do you like that concept? Let me tell you about Elizabeth. I'm a lawyer, living and working in Ireland. I was born in New York. I studied Irish folklore and English literature in UCD Dublin. Brilliant. All right, let's see what we can do. We're going to give it our very best shot possible, as you know, and it's going to come from Beverly. Single Assassin by Elizabeth Dunn, read by Bev. On January 5th, an unseasonably warm but blustery evening, I killed a man named Jim Lacey at a charity fundraiser in the exclusive Four Seasons Hotel. Jim Lacey was 48 years old, and like most men secretly plotting divorce, he'd no idea how to fund it beyond the simplest calculations and flimsiest fantasies. With an envelope of cash, he had purchased a fixed tournament table at the annual Blue Moon Ball, organised by the National Impotence Prevention Society, NIPS, a worthy cause arousing global sympathy. Jim Lacey had no personal experience of impotence, but he enjoyed a good laugh. His chest, 
visible through a polyester-frilled shirt, was a wiry forest propagated on a diet of air-dried salami, caramelised cashew nuts and Belgian ale, all testament to a life well lived on an oily engine of overflowing testosterone. Jim's guests were his wife, sporting a widow's grimace, four cackling administrative staff from Jim's dry cleaning business, one of whom he regularly banged up against his perk stock, and a married couple whose telepathic devotion was worthy of a psychic convention. Jim spent little time at his table, and before the crab salad dressed with lobster in orange sauce, he table-hopped like a zealous charity event mingler. He was a regular donor to the Gastric Illness Association, GIA, where suspicion of pesky mollusks and hatred of onions was rife. The last person to interact with Jim before I blasted his brains out was a Polish bartender named Mario, who expertly prepared Jim a mojito with crushed sugared ice and smashed mint leaves under fake moonlight at the Caribbean bar on the main floor. After spearing an olive and scooping spicy almonds, he ferried his drink to the brick terrace outside and sat in thin rainbow sprays from an ivy-festooned fountain. Inside, an auction was underway for a skiing holiday in the Western Whistler Hotel, with the compare promising snowboarding, snowshoeing and tobogganing when bidders bunched at a thousand euro. He assured the audience it could be re-gifted as a wedding present next winter. Alone with his rum, Jim Lacey made his way to a kidney-shaped pond stocked with glistening lithe goldfish and a sprinkling of fathead minnows. A verdigris gazebo strangled by wisteria separates him from me, and a bronze, aged, platinum-haired waitress flirting shamelessly with a GAA jock drafted in to present an autographed hurley stick. I slid around into my chamber with a satisfying click and judge the distance from the roof. I have a number one Barrett M82, and although I usually buy American, if I'm jittery, I go with Austrian precision. Everyone agrees my shot is fantastic. I'm number one on a list of five truly democratic countries in dark web polls, a true natural in a world of pretenders. You gonna take that shot? Janie Mack's voice, gravelly and sexually ambiguous, cracks in my earpiece. She's my compliance officer in a van outside. An ironic and unusual career choice for a retired porn star whose claim to fame is a topless video shot in an Alaskan graveyard that went viral on YouTube in 2004. She doesn't care about trajectory or air pressure, parking fines or speed limits. I think she's left wing, but the Jesus loves you bumper sticker confuses me. The hit will be tricky. The bullet will blast out fast, then wobble into a downward whiz, crashing into a shot glass wall skimming the gazebo. I visualised myself swinging my Blazer R8 over my shoulder and blasting away, but that would annihilate the herbaceous borders and fry the pond life. If I belly crawl through the garden, the slug would hit the concrete base and the ricochet would kill me. I assessed the growing crosswind, a pungent cocktail of sweat and cherries, when Janie spoke again. We ain't got all day. Her voice sounded like her feet were up, coffee in hand, clipped by impatience. 
false teeth out with a cushion-soft pink-glazed doughnut squashed between receding gums. She doesn't know about the octogenarian sprawling herself over the dazed sports star or the fact that Jim Lacey is adding duty-free rum to his empty tumbler, morphing into an erratic moving target. All right. Um, uh uh, amazing reactions here going on in the genius room. Hannah says, humor's great. I edited it down, though, because I'm losing the thread of the story. Very entertained by this, says Kate, who then later goes on to say, OK, I'm in. I would read all of this. Annie says, this is tonight's winner for me. Uh, Vicky says, getting confused at the end. Um, Johnny, um, love the hurly stick line. This is winning me over, he says. Um, Rivergate says, I've been there. What does that mean? About so, to kill somebody? In it's a, very in a worrying, yeah. Rivergate. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, we'll just move on quickly from that. Uh, Vagabond, who actually read it, was our narrator, says, This is so hard to read. Great long sentences, sometimes for several lines, without even a comma. Writing nice, but spare a thought for your poor reader. Um, Galadriel says, Is this comedy? Yes. And Kate says, National Impotence Prevention Society made me laugh out loud. Kate cackled. Mo. Yeah, I, it, it made me laugh too. I, I liked her. I liked her tone. I liked, I liked the, uh, yeah, I liked the delivery. I could hear it in my voice as a monologue as she was doing it. Um, uh, yeah, I, I could hear it very well. Bev, Bev did an amazing delivery of it too. She did, and I could yeah. see there were a couple of times where I got exactly what she just said about the lines being a little bit too long. And for your your actor, your reader, your voice or whatever in your head, sometimes that is, you're trying to pace it. But exactly what we said before, think about how you're pacing it because you've got, mm. it, it's sometimes jam-packed with too many things. Mm. There's, there's yeah. so many funny things or asides or whatever that somebody else said or they got a bit lost. I think because you got a side, a side, a side, a side funny thing sometimes you got to stick a bit more to the track um yes. i didn't think the blurb told us the tone of the piece and the tone no, it is didn't. so it didn't. Vital. it didn't yeah 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 i yeah. think the blurb was the blurb didn't tell us what was going to happen and i wouldn't have picked up the book on the blurb mm -hmm. um i would have thought it was a bit of melodrama or something yeah it'll tell um, yeah yeah so so yeah. so if she can do a blurb that is uh that captures her humor and her tone yeah um, this have you heard of agatha Raisin? Yeah, Agatha, yeah. yeah. It's, it, it reminded me of that, actually. Which oh, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, it's very English humour, actually, I think, Agatha Raisin. But it's got that sort of interesting mix of, you know, sort of hardcore murder and um, and whimsy. Difficult, difficult to strike the balance between that. What did you think there, Robert? Yeah. Oh, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a, a really good submission. I um, thought it hit all the, all the right beats in all the right places. Um, the voice was, was really strong. Um, and it sort of really suited, I think, what we were talking about, that kind of, uh, that the hitman's mindset in that the character was so deadpan and so lacking empathy that it sort of fitted how you could see how this person yeah. would would be quite comfortable killing people because they they have that kind of view of the world and view of people. Um, so I, I, I like that. It was funny. There were some lovely turns of phrase. Um, I thought the, the characterization, the compliance offer was the uh, c uh, compliance officer whatever that was was just so random and so 
it's, it works so well. Um, I thought the only thing that, that sort of threw me a bit was I think we stayed with the person that she was going to going to kill a tad too long. Maybe just yeah. just one one paragraph too much that it's sort yeah. of particularly because the opening character you then start to think oh, is this the person I'm supposed to be following here? So you yeah. sort of I think I think that was probably the only weak spot. Uh, and then I think as you said that the blurb, even though it was good and it was short and sweet, it didn't actually reflect the, the the tone of the voice at no, all. I didn't, no, I didn't. No, scrap the blurb, actually, I think, um, yeah, completely. Uh, it's bit, also reminded me a little bit of Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Do you remember that? That was the, the, oh, yes. yeah. the Brangelina yeah, yeah, thing of some years ago. It's got yeah, that, yeah. that sort of vibe yeah. to it as well. Yeah. Um, wow, guys. Well, um, I have to say, uh, this has been a moment of extreme high drama, actually, because for <laughs> oh, the whole month, Matthew must be feeling so, so upset, actually. Matthew's been... Winning, winning, winning every show for the whole month. And it looked like he was going to walk it this month as well. The last submission of the last show of the month. You've got 76 there, Elizabeth. Wow. So let's just take one final look at the scorecard. And uh, it's pretty convincing, actually, isn't it? 76 for Elizabeth. She wins the popular vote for the blurb, for the craft, and for the bang, um, quite convincingly, actually, in every category there. Which means... Yeah. You are our weekly winner, Elizabeth, and actually our monthly winner, too. You've walked both of them. Congratulations. Many congratulations. I didn't expect this, this sort of high drama. But people are going to say it's a, it's a, it's a put-up job. Honestly, it's not. It really isn't. How could we organise ourselves to sufficiently well to do it like that? But I just think it's, it's an amazing climax to our first month. Many congratulations, Elizabeth. Haven't our guests been amazing? So nice to see Robert. We hear him so much. We've seen him for the first time. He won't be the last, I hope, if he will agree to come back. And the fabulous Mo, of course. He's a regular guest here. And, um, always such a such a great person to have on the show. Just say thank you very much, Genius Dream. You've given so much today to all of our wonderful authors. And, of course, Emily in charge of submissions and Kate and Rachel. All appreciated. Couldn't be possible without any of you. Let's do it all again. Same time next Sunday.